Welcome back to another episode of Terms and Conditions. I am Berhan Taye. And I'm Nima Ayer. So Nima, what's our show about today? Glad you asked. Today we are launching a new project. It's called Choose Your Own Fake News. And it's part of Mozilla's Creative Media Awards. And we're pretty excited about it. Oh my God. Does, okay. So that means we won an award. Yay. And oh, choose your own fake news. I have so many questions. Tell me, tell me more. So the central idea behind choose your own fake news is that it's an interactive web-based game exploring how disinformation spreads across East Africa. So you can play it on your laptop. You can play it on your phone. And you play the game as Flora, Joe, or Ida, who are all from East Africa. And you get to navigate the world of disinformation and misinformation through the choices that you make. So you have to scrutinize news and information about job opportunities, vaccinations, and upcoming elections to make the right choices. And the main premise of the game is that online misinformation has real world implications offline. And it can threaten people's lives, their freedom of expression, prosperity. And of course, this is true all across Africa, where many people are coming online for the first time. I know that many countries have internet um, penetration rates of around 30% to 50%. So there's a massive number of people who are coming online for the first time, and they don't yet have the proper context to distinguish what is trustworthy and what is not. And so our game is trying to teach new or recent internet users how they can be more discerning about the information that they receive online. Fascinating. Okay, so before we delve into deep, what do you mean with fake news? Um, give us the basics. Yeah. So starting off, misinformation is false or inaccurate information. So you could spread news by accident that you didn't know was false. However, disinformation is false or misleading information that is spread deliberately to deceive. So the major difference lies in the intent. Disinformation carries with it the deliberate intent to spread information known to be incorrect, while the sender of misinformation may not know that it's inaccurate. And by constantly sharing this information in our communities, by forward, 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 people do contribute to fake news in this vicious cycle that converts products of disinformation into misinformation and so on, and poses a massive risk to the audiences. And you might ask, so how does it happen? How does disinformation get out there? Who is so jobless to go in and doctor videos or, you know, just make up false facts? And a lot of this can be attributed, one, to bots. And think of a bot as a tiny robot, a automated software application, and it runs off of usually artificial intelligence, and this accounts for a huge proportion of all online activities. Sometimes up to half of online activity is just bots. And some of these bots are often malicious. And then there's also the second one, which are trolls who are real life people, and they're just deliberately out there to disrupt, attack, offend, and generally cause all kinds of trouble on the internet. So a mixture of these bots and trolls contribute to much of the disinformation online with the main reasoning to just simply cause chaos or to cause discord and polarize communities based on this information. So technological advancements and specifically AI can aid in both the creation and the elimination of disinformation. So, you know, AI software can be used to make synthetic media or audio such as fake videos 
or deep fakes, which basically show people saying something totally ridiculous that they would never say. But of course, it's a doctored video. But the same technology can also be used to build predictive models that can identify and flag potential fake news articles. And then you can take them off social media channels before they make it into communities and circulate and start this vicious cycle again. Wow, that's um, that's a lot to take in. So both deepfakes, uh, synthetic media. What the hell is synthetic media and audio? But okay, we'll leave that aside. But like, can you... Like, what does this look like in our everyday lives, our everyday struggles, our aunties that are forwarding, what was it, forward as received content to us every other day? Uh, what does that look like uh, on, the, on the lives that we live every day? Yeah, great question. So I want to take a step back to Kenya in 2007. And at this time, WhatsApp maybe didn't exist. And SMS was the main tool for communication. And SMS, which is, you know, quite an old technology, proved to be very useful in organizing systematic and publicly organized campaigns of mob violence. And these SMS texts were used to circulate rumors and hate messages with the aim of destabilization. And um, basically the phone became this tool to spread terror. So that's back in 2007. And the important, the reason I mention this is because there is a difference between closed and open chat systems, which we'll talk about actually in another upcoming episode. So on Facebook, you can see the messages that people post. It's all public. The AI can come and flag it down and take it off. But WhatsApp is encrypted end to end. And so these messages are opaque even to the company that runs it. They have no control. They can't see who's sending what. And it becomes difficult to track these conversations in these media. So moving into the recent past, a well-known case is that of the WhatsApp lynchings in India. And this started off as rumors on WhatsApp. So they would be different videos. You know, one of them was of child abduction, but the video actually was a video created by a Pakistani NGO and it was an awareness campaign about kidnapping. But the doctored video took away the NGO message so it looked like children were being kidnapped. Another video was that of Syrian children who were killed in a nerve gas attack in 2013. And then this footage was circulated on WhatsApp as Indian children whose organs were soon to be harvested. So you would be a person who was traveling through India. You might stop and, you know, chat with some kids, give them some chocolates or just be polite and kind. And people would think that you were there to kidnap, abduct, harvest organs. And mobs would attack these people and many people died. And sometimes videos of the people being attacked would even surface online and journalists would spread it, further contributing to this entire disinformation and this mob lynching. And it was really terrifying. And in, in, the, in the more recent past, in 2018, Facebook users started circulating images of the bloodied corpse of a baby, of a man who was attacked, of bodies in mass graves in Nigeria. And these images were accusing Fulani Muslims of perpetrating violence and atrocities against Christians. And in what was basically vigilante retribution, the Christian youths then attacked the Fulani men and, you know, some were dragged out of their cars and about 10 people were killed based on those messages that circulated. So here you can see that many people lost their lives by this, these disinformation campaigns. 
And moving on to the technologies, India has asked WhatsApp to remove end-to-end encryption so that they can regulate the messages. But what I really want to stress is that fake news will spread regardless of what communication app you use. It is not an issue of technology. Rumors have always spread even before the phone existed. But what's more important is this bigger issue that we have to look at of religion and class and gender and ethnic divides and this suspicion of outsiders that comes into play. And basically that communities have a lack of faith and trust in government authorities to look after their interests, to protect them. And then this leads to these vigilante and mob justice. And this is just one example, but there's a lot more work to do to stop this divisiveness between communities. And just turning to technology, this techno-solutionism is not just the answer. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and one thing that has been really hard, I think, for a lot of countries and for a lot of the spaces that you and I occupy and others as well is, um, you know, there's a thin line between what's fake and real, um, right? Like, so fake news doesn't come, like, they don't say, you know, oh, an explosion happened here when an explosion didn't happen. But when explosion happens, it's more about the details and the fine, the fine, uh, the fine details that are uh, tweaked. So there's an excellent uh, op-ed by Nanjira Sambuli and Al Jazeera, and we'll make sure that there's a link in the show description here as well, that clearly shows this problem. So her main argument that op-ed is during Kenya's last um, Kenya's last election, it was hard to tell what was real and fake and what was being spread on, on, on social media specifically. Um, so she contends that, yes, there was violence and excessive use of force by the police after election results were announced. But what was hard was to really know the extent of that violence. So traditional media failed uh, to cover, for one reason or another, really failed to cover the violence. Um, and people have to turn to social media to find out what exactly was happening across the country. And social media did indeed fill the chasm left by traditional media. There was no question. But what? But it also came with a price. So that price was that, um, you know, it was really hard to dis- to distinguish between what was real and what was fake. Um, so, you know, um, for instance, the Kenyan uh, Human Rights Commission said 24 people died. Opposition said 100 people died. Social media had all, like, you know, all sort of, uh, you know, a number, like videos posted online. Was, what was really hard was that to really differentiate between the fact and, 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 the, and the fake news within the fact. Um, so that is one that is one issue that we continue to, to see in Ethiopia and India and other places, you know. There might have been a stranger that has walked through the town and he might have gotten into an argument with somebody and he, they might have even fought. But the results, the, you know, the, the, the result of that information is so doctored that to an extent when it comes to even professionals, journalists, it's become so hard to figure out what is real and fake. Um, so, and I, I guess that's why fake news is much goes more viral than than uh, boring real news. Agree. So, Baran, how would you say that African governments are responding to the issue of fake news? So it really depends from one country to another. Um, so South Africa, for instance, has criminalized, criminalized misinformation on COVID-19. So you can't share misinformation on COVID, government's response to COVID, the numbers, everything around COVID. If you share misinformation, you're going to be penalized. So that is one specific response that we've seen. Nigeria is in the process of criminalizing fake news, and Ethiopia, unfortunately, has managed to pass a law restricting the spread of hate speech and disinformation. So if you're, if you're a nerd and have looked at the preamble of Ethiopia's hate speech and disinformation suppression and prevention proclamation, it is definitely a mouthful. What it's trying to do is quite legitimate. So it says that, you know, it understands the threats posed by hate speech and misinformation on human dignity. 
which is very true and valid. And what it really did was it broadly defined what hate speech is, it broadly defined what disinformation is. It completely disregarded the role of the digital system in educating on what is hate speech or what's not, right? Like, so freedom of expression is definitely limited um, in the constitution. And that limitation is interpreted by the courts. Uh, But now that power has been really given to social media platforms which is unethical and brings up a lot of problems. So, and then one one thing that I found to be quite crazy and how a lot of our governments are trying to deal with this is how if you have more than 5,000 followers, apparently you're going to be punished more than somebody that has 4,999 followers. Um, so that's, that's how majority of these countries are dealing with it. They're coming up with legislation that's broad, that doesn't understand the nuance of go- content governance, content curation, content moderation, and what, all of the things that need to go on the back end. Um, and then this, the social media platforms getting that judicial, normally what is deemed judicial power to them to decide what is acceptable speech, what's not acceptable speech in, 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 in different jurisdictions. I know that Egypt was one of the countries that went ahead with considering people with 5,000 Twitter followers as a media house. Did they actually move forward with that? Are people being charged? Oh, yes. Um, They recently charged a social media influencer uh, who's who's actually quite young and a woman, um, saying that, you know, she's she's a media uh, personality or a media house because she has more than 5,000 followers. Ethiopia recently charged somebody, uh, um, a journalist, uh, with allegedly uh, spreading false misinformation false news or misinformation and he has a high number of followers so we're, it's, it's he's most likely going to get like three to five years in prison because of just the number of followers so it's so arbitrary it doesn't make any sense I don't know who you know who who's the genius behind this really dumb idea of labeling people based on the followers that they have um, it doesn't understand how content is curated how content goes viral um, but yeah but you know we're, here we are now um so Nigeria is also in the process of enacting a terrible fake news legislation. And we talked with our colleague and friend, uh, Benga Sesan, the executive director of Paradigm Initiative from Abuja, Nigeria. So the first question we asked Benga was, how, how would you describe the impact of dif- disinformation in Nigeria? Disinformation has been a major tool in the hands of politicians in Nigeria of course, as with many other countries. And what we've seen of recent is how disinformation has played a major role in the distrust of established institutions uh, that should ideally be the lighthouse during a pandemic. And this, this is worrying because you've had a lot of you know, information that should not get into the hands of vulnerable people. Uh, You've had that happen. Um, A very simple example would be when, you know, people were desperate and scared about, you know, COVID-19 and heard that, oh, guess what? They found a cure somewhere and it's chloroquine. And that same week, there were reports of the overdose of chloroquine uh, reported by many medical centers, you know, in different parts of Nigeria. And that, you know, would be basically disinformation bringing a second level of medical emergency during a medical emergency. And so that's that's uh, unfortunate. Um, so currently there are two bills in Nigeria. The first one is the Protection from Internet Falsehood and Manipulation Bill. 
and the second one is the prohibition of hate speech uh, bill. Uh, we might, it's important to say some of these bills are an exact copy paste from Singapore, side note. We'll deal with that in another day. Uh, but these bills are uh, are proposed to regulate the operation of social media and information shared on them. Some alarming content from the bill includes that governments can unfortunately, and I'm not making this up, shut down the internet if social media platforms do not take down inappropriate contact. So we asked him to tell us more about these bills and how terrible they're going to be uh, for the Nigerian population. There are two similar bills that touch on social media, the internet, information being shared, and some really draconian acts by government in Nigeria. That's the Protection from Internet Falsehood and Manipulation Bill, which is also known as the Social Media Bill, and the Prohibition of Hate Speech Bill, which is also known as the Hate Speech Bill. Uh, What both of them have in common is the fact that they've been seen by social media users, uh, and rightfully so, as an opportunity for government to clamp down on active and dissenting voices. Of course, they both, you know, seek to approach one on the other and tries to, you know, says it attacks the issue of false uh, or fake news uh, or disinformation, as it should be called. And the other says it tries to cope the problem of its speech. But the challenge is that, uh, for example, the its speech bill had some really worrying provisions, including, you know, debt penalty, uh, which the sponsor says has now been, you know, removed. But of course, we can't take his word for it. We have to see the bill at a public hearing, which it hasn't come to. Uh, But the, you know, the social media bill, which is protection from internet falsehood and manipulation bill, has actually gone to public hearing. Uh, We're glad uh, you know, to have been able to coordinate that's part of initiative is glad to have been able to coordinate, you know, pushing against the bill at the public hearing and we were excited to see how many organizations were there to really say you know what this is not what you need um you do not you can't cope this problem through regulation that seeks to create more problems in the name of solving you know uh problems and so the challenge with this bills is that they're not just about clamp down but they are recurring bills. So these bills seem to die and then wake up with every legislature. Um, they come in different names with different sponsors and different titles, but they always come back and they all have that, you know, challenge in common of focusing on clamping down on dissenting voices and the provision for very, very vague interpretation that can lead to situations where journalists or activists can be accused of crimes and punished. Lastly, we also asked them about the public and civil society response to these bills and what needs to be done. Thankfully, civil society organizations were at the public hearing, uh, sent in memos uh, to the National Assembly and were there physically uh, and we're glad, I mean, we're particularly excited that, you know, people are not resting. Uh, People are conscious that these bills are not dead until they are declared dead. Uh, And at Paradigm Initiative, we are also excited about the opportunity of working with the Secretariat of the Human Rights Committee that worked on the 
prohibition from internet forced manipulation bill and we do hope that our recommendations will be considered and that these two bills will be thrown out immediately great thank you so much benga um so you know we we've 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 talked a lot about this topic but one thing i think for me that left the elephant always in the room is social media platforms and what they're doing to respond to this problem so facebook recently released its transparency report and it claims that co- the company removed 9.6 million pieces of content that was hateful or deemed hateful in the first four months of 2020 so we were all busy online spreading and posting hate speech it seems So what's really interesting is that more than 80%, I think even to be precise, 88.8% of the content apparently was flagged by their artificial intelligence algorithm or whatever. Uh, what what we don't know for sure, though, is that how accurate is this AI and how many false positive have come up with an, with with the AI being responsible for t- for taking down that that content. So this is really important because when we contextualize this information for instance to Ethiopia, Nigeria or India, uh we know that uh, like we we have to understand and we have to be able to know how good the AI is in 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 our specific context. We know that the AI w- needs to be trained in different language um that people normally converse or post on Facebook. Um and we're not just hating on Facebook, it's just that you know majority of the world uses Facebook and majority of the problem that we see is from Facebook at least in our perspective. So no uh, yeah, so they're all they're all equally responsible but Facebook maybe a, a tiny bit more than others. Um so we know that uh the the ai needs to be trained on the language that people are normally posting on facebook um and we know that and individuals from facebook that are dealing with this issue have told us one too many times that the ai doesn't have enough data to train to be trained on on specific content um but even if it's trained it doesn't mean that it's it's accurate right like so taking down somebody's um content flagging it as hate speech when it's in in air quotes legitimate speech is is also pro- problematic in order to compensate for the lack of data on what's hateful content they would need to hire more content moderators that speak that language understand the politics the vernaculars the complexities of what makes a specific content hateful uh, for that specific community that's under attack and there's a lot of problems with that one is um, for like as an ethiopian that only speaks one language that has lived majority of her life in addis and being hired as a content moderator for instance uh, representing Ethiopia within Facebook I would not I would be lying if I say I know the context of Gambella or um, or Afar or uh, like you know all of those regions that that um, or all of the language that content is being posted on so you have to understand the complexities the struggles the 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 what's hateful content and that what are the different political the socio-economical historical contexts in order to judge a certain content in a specific um within a specific community so this process what you know um, at the end of the day what it tries to do is it tries to centralize and universalize our individual experiences and it has failed one too many times um so content moderators have a lot of responsibility even if they if they do exist and, you know um they they like when we've asked facebook one too many times how many content moderators they have for amharic or or romania tigrinya somali they say they have some they they say <laughs> there was a really interesting one there they were like it's two it's two digit numbers 
Okay, two-digit numbers can be 11 or 99. There's a big difference between that, right? Like, so, but there's a reason why they're not telling us how many those, those individuals are. And then, of course, the, the, the jobs of the content moderators is not easy. So sitting all day flagging content that can be stressful, can lead to mental health issues. And this is why Facebook this week has agreed to pay compensation to content moderators for a, like around $52 million in compensation for the mental health issues developed on the job. So this idea of being able to regulate the content as well is not easy. Trying to tell what's fake or not, if you're not a journalist, is very difficult. And then also like the, compl the complexities of the issues that you're faced with every day um, is hard. And that, you know, like, the, you know, I can't imagine like, you know, having that power to say, yes, this is hateful. Yes, this is not hateful. It's, it's, it's also such a weird power to be wielding in front of your computer. Moving beyond content moderation, we might also ask, you know, what, what, what else works or what actually works? And we can see that current initiatives focus on educating the general masses about the existence of fake news, such as this game that we've made, and emphasizes on areas, you know, such as how does it happen? How does it spread? What is the harm? How do you identify it? And there are a number of fact-checking and verification platforms that are out there aiming to debunk fake news and trying to establish relationships with social media so that they can work hand-in-hand -hand for these fact-checking initiatives. But research shows that fact-checking initiatives might not always work as intended because it's difficult to change people's minds once an idea has been implanted in their heads. Secondly, people often only read the titles of articles. They don't really care for the content. And other than that, fact-checkers don't really have the reach to get their message to all the people that they need once that fake news has already reached the community. Like There is no realistic way that they can have the amount of funding that that would require. Looking at the example of the US, fact-checkers are outspent by political campaigns 100 to 1. And besides that, fact-checking really is an attempt to cure symptoms rather than a disease. So we, we have to ask, how do we hold people accountable and discourage this behavior in the first place of spreading false information? And looking at it from another angle, how do we make the truth go viral? And to help answer some of those questions, we spoke to our colleague, Eric Mugenda, who runs Pesa Check out of Nairobi. And the first question we asked him was to tell us more about his work with Pesa Check. I'm the managing editor of Pesa Check, which is a verification and fact-checking initiative based in Nairobi. And um, we look into statements by politicians and other public figures uh, and uh, try to make sure that the information that people are consuming from lots of different platforms is accurate. So we look at information published on mainstream media and on social media as well. And then we try to produce analysis and uh, content. So in the form of fact checks that people can read and then try to get uh, information from the fact checks that we produce on various things. Uh, so initially it was budgets and public finance, but now we've diversified into more general fact-checking. So we provide fact-checking as a service to the general public. We then asked him how effective he thinks fact-checking is in the African context. So fact-checking is different in all the countries we work in. So for Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, which were the countries we started out in, there's vastly different laws in terms of access to information and access to data. So for Kenya, for example, there's open data laws and access to information laws, which essentially mean that the government is compelled to share any information that it has 
And uh, any information that is not shared by the government, we can then request uh, in terms of access to information. But at the same time, we've seen laws come into place in a country like Tanzania where the government essentially says fact-checking isn't um, allowed because any data that is uh, published by the government is essentially the truth. So we, as a fact-checking organization, can't do our own research to figure out what the the reality on the ground actually is. And for Uganda, we've also seen the government is quite proactive in terms of sharing and publishing information, but then there's uh, a bit of limitation in terms of how the journalists in these countries are using this information to inform the public. So the information might be there, but then a lot of times it's not in a form that's accessible to the the general public in these countries. So what we try to do is we try to put the information in a way that is easily processed and uh, understood by the people in these countries. And uh, that's what we try to put into our fact checks. And lastly, we asked, how can we hold people and organizations accountable when it comes to spreading disinformation? So one way that people can hold organizations and uh, individuals accountable for the information that they're sharing is by asking for the source of information. Because a lot of times the information is shared on different platforms without uh, people trying to consider the provenance, like where the information is from. So... There was, uh, there used to be, we don't see it as much anymore. Uh, there used to be a tendency where people forwarded things or sent things on messaging platforms and said, this is just forwarded as received. I'm not the author of this information. But now what we're trying to do is to ask people to ask the sources of this information. Where did you get it from? Especially when it's trying to get people to act in a certain way or take certain actions. And the other thing that we've seen is the information that we are sharing in terms of our fact checks are being used or being shared by the public in a way that gets the people who are sharing false information to see that the information they're sharing has actually been debunked. So that is effective in certain situations where the people sharing the false information actually do believe that it's true, but where it's uh, bad actors, where people are sharing this false information be, um, with the intention to cause harm, it's a lot less effective in terms of fact-checking. So that is one challenge that uh, we've seen. But in terms of holding people accountable, it's essential to find the accurate and the true information and using that as a basis for engagement rather than um, trying to attack people and um, questioning them based on evidence and based on data rather than based basing the, the responses that we are seeing or the responses that the public is making on feelings and emotions. So it, it's uh, more effective to take a more rational approach to fight false information. Cool. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for all that information. Yeah. So Eric has given us a lot of good ideas, uh, but what are the other possibilities? So I, I have a few. I think first, ban all aunties and uncles from forwarding any information that's labeled forwarded as received. Um, so my uncle, I can tell you a story about, um, there's an uncle of mine that um, <laughs> believes in a lot of conspiracy theories. So it's, and he's always looking for Mercury. God knows why he's looking for Mercury. Um, so when, when, when our dictator Melissa Zenawi died, I think 2012, and you know, WhatsApp and Facebook was not as, as, as like widely available as it is today. He came to our house while on TV, we're actually looking at 
like, you know, his casket being taken, like, you know, the martial arm, whatever, whatever. Like, it's a whole thing happening. He's like, he's like, let me tell you kids, Mendel uh, Zainab is not dead. Uh, we were like, excuse me? Uh, we're looking at him. I mean, he's dead <laughs> on TV. He's like, no, no, no. He's sitting on an island looking and looking at Ethiopia through a binocular. We were like, isn't Ethiopia landlocked? Okay, that's hate speech right there. So offending. And, you know, water is overrated, to be honest. Yeah. That's what somebody from a landlocked country would say. Whatever, Tanzania. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) I think the next thing that would work, I already mentioned, right, is this digital literacy and education. So it's only common sense that this has to be taught, you know, starting from primary schools. Because kids have phones nowadays from, you know, from the time they're born. Literally, they take their parents' phones. So... It is so, so, so important for this to be a part of mainstream curriculum and for people to be aware of this starting from a very young age. I think that would be the next approach. I think Africa needs a lot of curriculum change and this just has to happen ASAP. We have to understand that the way that content is created now has is a bit more, has been democratized in a way, right? Like anybody can upload content. And I can, I can share an experience with you that I had with a lady that works at my mom's house. Uh, she saw this content on YouTube and she was so offended and touched on like issues that her people are facing, you know, like it had a lot of like so many crazy fake and misinformation within it. So I asked her, like, where did you get this information? She's like, no, it's here. It's on YouTube. It's like, you know, it's like, it's real. This guy is talking about all of these things. And I was like, do you know that you can upload your own video? She's like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, you can create an account. I can record you and we can upload. She didn't believe me. We did. We tried it. And afterwards she was just like, oh, wow. So she's like, anybody, anybody that can walk on the streets can upload like content on YouTube, I'm like, yeah, you can do that. So from then on, like our interaction has really changed in terms of how we talk about these issues is the fact that her understanding that anybody can upload this content, edit, doctor it, and being able to see it was, um, for lack of a better word, it was very empowering in understanding how how this content is manufactured. After that, her inter- even her interaction with my mom, whenever they talk about issues, like it's like, who created it? Who uploaded it? <laughs> I love uh, it. You know, like which Facebook group is that? Right. Like, so this is this is what we need to do. Um, the other thing that you know, I've, I, I, you always hear Facebook folks saying that, oh, you know, in in Africa, a lot of people don't, you know, report content. <laughs> I love this voice. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> like, that's how Facebook is represented in my head. Um, so this problem, and I was like, you know, we were, we were talking about this issue specifically on Ethiopia. I was like, okay, you have a problem with people saying that they're, they don't they don't report content. How about you advertise on Prime TV showing people how to report content? Really? It should be very easy. Majority of the people watch TV. Majority of the, the population listens to the radio. Uh, of course, they didn't take the idea. I think the idea is great. It's just that they didn't <laughs> take the idea. And one of the reasons I think is, you know, you can get people to report the content, but there needs to be a lot of work in the back end within these tech companies to employ more more individuals that, that understand that content that that you know that that actually enforce the takedown process. Um, so you know, being able to understand, like, I don't think majority of people know that they can actually report content, even if they do report it. Will it will it be taken down is also a really significant one to ask. I think the other thing circulating back to this um, onus that's on media is that media houses need to be empowered. And I think that's easier said than done nowadays, given the issue that funding for journalism is, is just plummeting these days. And this really leads to the spread of these digital 
agencies that are now spitting out news with the aim of getting as many clicks as possible. So whether we're thinking about public interest broadcasting or other forms of funding to support media and journalism, I think that that is, is very important so that there's more people who are spreading the truth and helping that go viral instead. I, I completely agree with you. We need to create new ways of creating content. You know, uh, we need to make sure that people are educated on these topics. More, like, So there's two programs that I really follow and that I really like on this topic. One is BBC Trending. It's, um, it's a world service radio program that airs every Saturday morning East Africa time. So calculate your own time zones. It's a fantastic show that deals with this issue very judiciously. Uh, it talks about how content, um, like how to stop content from going viral, how content that is disinformation, misinformation is created and how how it goes viral. It has a really interesting show about also how when a troll meets their target. So it's a really good, uh, it's a good podcast that really shows this issue and we'll make sure that the, this, uh, in, that link is there in the description. Africa Check also has this program called What's Crap on WhatsApp. Uh, so it's a really <laughs> interesting program. So it's mostly for South Africa, but they debunk like the weekly or the monthly, um, you know, uh, fake news information that that is out there. So what they do is that they also have a WhatsApp chat bot that you can subscribe to. So it comes to you as audio on WhatsApp. So you don't even have to read anything. Oh, I really right? like, like that. So these are all really interesting ways that we can, um, you know, including your project, right? Like, so that that's what it tries to do. It tries to teach people about how they can be victims, how this thing, this content is created. So we need to meet where people where they are. And we also have to really think creatively as the people that are creating this mis misinformation. You know, the misinformation is not coming in a, in a in a book. It's like, it's a very short script with a headline that can be shared and can go viral. So we equally have to step up. Yeah, agree. This has been a... Lovely conversation. I, I've learned a lot. I think it's I think it's very important to talk more about this. And that's kind of the point of launching this game. But this brings us to the end of the episode. The game is out today. You can access it at chooseyourownfakenews.com. That's chooseyourownfakenews.com. And it's also below in the show notes. So just click away, play it, give us feedback, share it. Tell us what you think. Yay. Thank you, Nima, so much for sharing your projects with us. I I'm so excited to play with it. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I am Berhan Taye at B-T-A-Y-E-G on Twitter. And I'm Nima Ayer on Twitter. Perfect. Subscribe to our podcast. Leave us comments. Catch us in two weeks. See you guys. Bye. Bye.